Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. We also have Harriet Agnew, our city correspondent, Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, and a guest from New Financial, the think tank, William Wright. Today, we'll be looking at the big stories of the week, HSBC being the biggest. What damage has this latest Swiss private banking scandal really caused to the bank? Secondly, we'll be looking at pay and the expectation that asset manager pay levels could, as soon as 2016, overtake those of investment bankers. And finally, we'll be going to Portugal to look at the planned takeover of BPI by one of Spain's biggest banks, Caixa. First, though, to HSBC. Martin, you've been embroiled in this whole affair over the past week or so. Lots of revelations about HSBC's Swiss private banking operation dating back a decade or so, as we looked at last week. Lots of scurrilous detail that politicians in particular have enjoyed getting into. There's a political angle, of course, because the former trade minister, Lord Green, became a Tory peer shortly after having run HSBC and and therefore had ultimate responsibility for what was going on at HSBC during this time. Is it leaving an indelible imprint on HSBC, do you think? I think it is. First of all, this client account data dates back to 2005 to 2007, which is a point the bank keeps making. So they're saying this is an old story. Mm -hmm. But it's not an old story because the details of it, including personal notes made by client advisors about their individual clients at HSBC's Swiss private bank, including details of schemes that were being offered to clients to help them dodge the tax man, blocks of cash that were being handed out of Swiss branches to clients to help them avoid the tax man, presumably. These kind of details are the damaging things, and they only came out last week. And since then, HSBC's suffered a hit to its share price, first of all, The shares are down about 3% compared to the FTSE 100 over the period since these revelations first came out. And that doesn't sound like a huge amount, but for a bank the size of HSBC, it is. It's about £3.5 billion worth of market value that's been lost. And the bank has also been forced to make a pretty grovelling apology. You know, its initial statement was quite apologetic, but over the weekend they took out some full-page advertisements in the national media in the UK, in which Stuart Gulliver... The chief executive said, you know, we must show we understand that societies we serve expect more from us. We therefore offer our sincerest apologies. But again, pointed out this stuff is old, that they've cleaned up their act since then, that the media have twisted the story, you know, they've exaggerated the numbers. And he's quite uh, pushing back in a lot of areas. So they're trying to get ahead of the story. But I think the other area where this really damages HSBC is in management time and distraction, because this is a this Swiss private bank is 3% of their pre-tax profits, right, in, in the first half of last year. And yet it's probably taking up, I would guess, 80 to 90% of the time of the chairman, Douglas Flint, and the chief executive, Stuart Gulliver, 
who, by the way, both of them have now been called or in discussions about being called by parliamentary committees to appear in public hearings. One is Douglas Flint, who's going to appear next week, two days after their full year results, to appear before the Treasury Select Committee. And the other is Stuart Gulliver, who I understand is in discussions with the Public Accounts Committee about appearing a few weeks later in a public hearing that they plan to have. So hugely distracting, hugely time-consuming, quite damaging for the, the HSBC brand. And potentially, there's the threat of lawsuits or criminal action against the bank in many countries, including potentially even the UK, and most damagingly, as we discussed last week, the US, where uh, they are being investigated also for foreign exchange manipulation, and they've run into trouble before for money laundering issues. Well, let me bring Caroline in on that point, because the parliamentary committee quizzing is something that has become pretty commonplace for senior bankers over the past few years since the crisis. One precedent that comes to mind in the aftermath of the scandal is Bob Diamond's quizzing by the Treasury Select Committee. Well, preemptively, he left his role, I think a day or so before that actually happened. This was going back a few years now. But by comparison, how damaging is this? Is it really a threat to the leadership, do you think, of HSBC? Potentially. I mean, I think we shouldn't underestimate the political element of this story. We're into the last 100 days before the election. All of the three main parties are trying to vie for the upper hand and the moral high ground here. As Martin said, the Treasury Select Committee and the PAC both trying to make headlines with what they can get out of the chief executives. And I think your comparison with Diamond is probably an apt one. If we go back to the Select Committee even earlier than the LIBOR one, which I think you were referring to when Bob said the time for remorse is over, I think from that point, Barclays as a bank and Bob in particular were really in the crosshairs of politicians. And so when the LIBOR scandal broke, you saw it was really a touch paper. And that's why you saw his resignation pretty soon after George Osborne stood up and said, well, we need heads on spikes, essentially, for this scandal. In this case, obviously, HSBC maybe has a little less record of acrimony with politicians, despite the Mexican kind of drug running issues, despite the fact that, you know, their US business blew up. This is, I suppose, a bank which is seen as having done better through the crisis, not been as deliberately provocative as some of the Barclays bosses were at the time. So whether it has goodwill to fall back on is a key question, I suppose. Stuart Gulliver can point probably to his having not been directly involved in a great deal of this, although he had for about a year, I think, a nominal responsibility for the private bank. But Douglas Flint, some people seem to be increasingly talking about as he was finance director during a lot of these scandals. Martin, how vulnerable is his position, do you think? Douglas Flint is a widely respected financial industry executive. He is not only chairman of HSBC, has been since 2011, but he's also chairman of the IIF, which is the banking industry's main forum for global industry leaders to get together and lobby and, and discuss policy. So, you know, he is extremely respected. And I think up to now has been seen as somebody who's come in with Stuart Gulliver in 2011 after this money laundering drug running fine in the US and tried to clean up the bank. He even had the authority to be mildly critical of regulation and say that it had gone too far because it was risking banks becoming too risk averse. 
because the weight of regulation, the weight of compliance, the weight of all this scrutiny that banks were under was forcing banks to become too risk averse. They weren't prepared to accept any clients who had any elements of risk about them at all in terms of compliance risk. And he wasn't rounded on in the same way that Bob Diamond was when he said the time for remorse is over. But as you say, he does have questions to answer. As I think the senior management at HSBC do have this question to answer, which they haven't addressed yet, is who knew what about the scale and extent of these practices where the bank was you know, proactively offering its clients offshore products expressly to avoid paying tax in Europe and to avoid a deal that Switzerland had done with other European countries as part of bringing all this undeclared wealth that was sitting in Swiss bank accounts back to the surface and to normalise it. And so to get around that, the bank was offering them these products. Now, was that known about at the executive level? You know, there were some private banking executives who were sitting in London who, you know, you can ask the question of them, did they know about this? But uh, Douglas Flint, I think, will have that question to answer next week when he appears. It'll be very interesting to see if he remains his defiant self in those sessions, I suspect. Mm. Perhaps not. We should move on to our second topic. A very interesting story that we reported in Monday's paper based on research from the new financial think tank showing that investment banker pay was now on a relatively downward trend compared to asset manager pay. And we kind of extrapolated this and said by 2016, the asset managers may have overtaken the investment bankers. Harriet, you wrote the story. Pretty interesting stuff. It is. And it's not what you'd expect, given the sort of public scrutiny that the investment banking pay has had compared to the asset manager pay. If you go back to 2006, pay at global investment banks has fallen 25% since then, whereas pay at asset managers has risen 22%. They've been a big beneficiary of QE, which has sort of pumped up the value of the assets that they're holding. Whereas investment banks, their revenues have been hurt by more regulation and lower volatility. William Wright we have with us, who's the founder of the new financial think tank that basically compiled the research on which Harriet's story was based. William, welcome. Were you surprised by what you found in your research? Initially, we didn't set out to even look at asset managers' pay. The initial aim was to look at what's happening with investment bankers' pay. I suppose we were surprised by the scale of the shift in the economics within the investment banking industry. If you look back before the financial crisis, pay at investment banks was roughly 50% of the investment bank's revenue. And since the financial crisis, we've had this structural shift where pay has come down hugely to about 40% of revenue, arguably could still come down further. But that represents across the industry a shift, a transfer of about $25 billion a year from staff working at investment banks to shareholders of investment banks. So we've had a huge structural shift since the financial crisis in the economics of the investment banking industry that has not been matched in any way by the asset management industry. Revenue relative to assets under management has flatlined. Pay relative to revenue has flatlined. So as assets under management increase, pay goes up. Does that undermine the ability of investors to hold banks to account on on the issue of pay? Because not only are these levels very close now, but also there's far greater secrecy within the asset management world really about the whole issue of pay, partly because I suspect they feel nervous about their ability to kind of hold moral authority. They're certainly very reluctant to talk about pay and they haven't as yet really been forced to talk about it because their pay hasn't been in the spotlight anything like as much as pay at investment banks. I think it does raise 
questions over their willingness and their ability to not only query high levels of pay and the balance of reward in investment banking, but also perhaps in the wider corporate world as well. One of the asset managers that we spoke to when we were putting the report together, the moment we mentioned pay, he said he warned that people in glass houses really shouldn't throw stones. And I think there's a danger that asset managers may find themselves in a position where they just don't feel they can even broach the subject. I mean, I suppose an alternative, maybe slightly more uplifting scenario would see them become far more transparent about things, holding themselves up as paragons, and therefore becoming far more able to hold everybody else to account. Because there's a lot of critics of the asset management industry in recent years that say, well, they just haven't done enough of a job mm-hmm. as being the, the kind of shareholder police on issues like pay. I think that's, that's a fantastically optimistic way of looking at it. But <laughs> it would be great to see more transparency from the asset management industry, particularly around the level of revenues, your money coming in at the very top of the chain. In investment banking, historically, the imbalance has been between staff and shareholders. Staff getting paid the total compensation, often being three or four times the level of profits left over for shareholders. In asset management, those are relatively balanced. And what it suggests, therefore, is that the imbalance is between staff, shareholders on the one hand, and customers, clients on the other. And I think if the asset management industry could be much more transparent, and it's making some movement in that direction around overall fee levels and the economics of the industry, then that would be a very good start. Well, thank you, William, for your thoughts on that. Let's hope your optimism is correct. Let's move on to the third topic, Portugal. The Portuguese banking sector has been in a state of turmoil, I think it's fair to say, for a number of years now. But that hasn't stopped CaixaBank, one of Spain's biggest banks, from taking an interest in acquiring one of Portugal's biggest banks, BPI. Laura, you've been looking at this. Is this a surprise, this deal? It is something of a surprise and it is a very interesting deal because this is one of the first really large cross-border Eurozone banking deals that we've seen in a very long time. Now, Caixa Bank wouldn't be a surprise buyer for BPI because Caixa already owned a 44% stake in it. So what essentially they're looking to do is take out the extra 56%. But it's still very interesting to see that banks are looking to pursue these large cross-border deals because one of the kind of hopes around having banking union, around having the ECB become the Eurozone's banking supervisor was that it would facilitate more of these cross-border deals. Now, there are a lot of sceptics out there who said that these kind of deals wouldn't happen and the banks fundamentally didn't want to become any bigger, didn't want to take any more risk, especially to countries like Portugal, which was one of the only Eurozone countries to go through a Troika programme. So So why on earth does Caixa want to uh, double up? In Portugal? Well, there's a lot that you can do actually within Portugal because Portugal's former biggest bank, now called Nova Banco, but which was formerly called Banco Espírito Santo, is actually being sold. And basically, through buying the full of BPI, Caixa can then finance BPI to buy Nova Banco. That would create a very large Portuguese bank. You would have a 28% market share. The Portuguese banking system wasn't the main issue in the country. So although Portugal did have a bailout programme and their bank certainly came under pressure, compared to some of the other crisis countries, it was actually relatively healthy. So you would have a very large bank in a country which is doing well now, which has certainly emerged from its bailout programme pretty well. So there are good reasons to want exposure to Portugal. And you could also buy a bank there relatively cheaply. I mean, I think they're looking at paying about 90% of the book value which does mean that you you would book a gain on that in theory as you buy it and you're getting a good price for it. To what extent is this a technical capital issue around bad will? 
Well, you should certainly see some capital gain for whoever buys Nova Banco because they will basically be buying it for less than the total value of its assets. And the way European accounting rules work, when you buy something for less than the value of its assets, you then take a gain for that amount. Now, typically, you would pay less than the value of something's assets because you are expecting future losses. So in theory, what should happen is you would take a two billion gain today and then over the next 10 years, you might lose 200 million per year on that asset. However, you do get the benefit of a large gain now, which is obviously very helpful for banks in this environment where there's a huge pressure to have capital now. So from that perspective, Nova Banco is an attractive proposition because of the way European accounting rules treat these kind of deals. And so for BPI and by extension Kaiser Bank, This is a kind of potential double whammy because they get that kind of technicality in terms of the prospective capital gain, but also a huge market share, as you suggested. Well, maybe it's the first of many cross-border deals. We'll, (laughs) We'll have to wait and see, but certainly an interesting one to start the year off. Thank you, Laura, for that. That's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline, Laura, Harriet, and also our guest from New Financial, William Wright. Please remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.